a very interesting and very important, very high stakes election occurred in, this, in the world this week. And if you hadn't heard my intro earlier, you might think I was talking about New Zealand, which has been very well publicized, especially in the kind of Western media because of Jacinda Ardern's popularity. And while that election is certainly deserving of attention, I want to talk about Bolivia. Uh, Nick, how much do you know about Bolivia? I went there many years ago, early 70s, as a young man, on the way uh, back from Australia to England. And I spent a week or two there, arrived on a very old train at La Paz, the capital, which is, uh, you know, is the highest capital in the world. In mm. fact, I've got a little bit of alt altitude sickness. And it was then a very poor country. Nearly mm. all the South American countries were military dictatorships, and Bolivia certainly was. It was where Che Guevara, yes. had his last days, yes. um, where he was killed. Yeah. But I'd sort of lost touch with it in recent years, and I, and I gather from you <laughs> mm. that it actually changed quite remarkably in recent times and actually gained a bit of wealth. Yes. It is by no means a rich country now, but its rate of change and its rate of progress has been quite impressive. Maybe just some context for people who haven't been to Bolivia, don't know much about it, because we, we don't hear much news about South America. You know, if you do know much about these countries, you, you, you're lucky, you're probably unusual in that sense. But Bolivia is in the middle of South America. It is a landlocked country, no ports, you know, bad for trade. It is remarkable in the sense that it has a very high indigenous population. About 40% of people there are of indigenous ancestry or direct indigenous ancestry. And for a very long time, they were very, very oppressed. Uh, under you know the military dictatorships that you mention and were second-class citizens. The other thing you should know about Bolivia is that it's got quite a lot of natural resources in terms of mining. It's got lots of natural gas and lots of lithium. So it's very profitable for the people who profit from it, which traditionally has not been the Bolivian people. That was the case up until 2005 when a new government was elected, MARS, or the Movement Towards Socialism, that's the name of the party, uh, led by Evo Morales. And they have accomplished quite remarkably in the years since 2005. While they were in power, they achieved a reduction in extreme poverty from 38 to 21%. They doubled the real minimum wage, and they tripled the GDP per capita from 2005 to 2019. They also nationalized many of Bolivia's utilities and key industries. So really, they're this socialist-identifying government that has achieved by, I suppose, socialist measures of achievement, you know, those goals of nationalization of as Marxists would say, in the nicest way possible, putting industry in the hands of the workers. But they've also been very successful in growing the economy, in yeah, raising the GDP 
having consistent and rapid growth, which is a criticism that is made against many socialist countries, especially in South America. You have Venezuela, which has this huge overinflation problem. So they're kind of a sterling example of what a kind of further left, left-wing government can be. But in 2019, they were taken out of power by the military having won the 2019 election and in the year since have been subjected to a, the country has been subjected to a far-right Christian fundamentalist government which was not elected democratically and that is the, those are the um, people who, whose role it was to lead Bolivia through coronavirus and, or rather not lead. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play a short clip from a American left-wing podcast. It's an interview with a Bolivian journalist named Oli Vargas, and this is just a short account of the events in Bolivia this past week. I was going to ask you, uh, where are you calling in from? Uh, I'm, at the moment, I'm in La Paz, uh, Bolivia. And, you know, you said it's a jubilant atmosphere. So, I mean, like, yeah, just uh, what's the energy like in La Paz on the, the nation as a whole right now? Well, Bolivia is a polarized country along class and racial lines. And in the working class sort of urban areas such as El Alto here in La Paz, in certain rural areas, there's, there's street parties going on. There's, uh, you know, huge outbursts of joy. Whereas in the sort of center of La Paz, in the centers of the big cities, there's... a a kind of defeated silence, because here is where the sort of pro-coup vote, Carlos Mesa vote is concentrated. And I think people here have known for a, for a really long time, actually, that the, the mass is going to win, that the mass represents the majority of the indigenous people in the rural areas and in the cities. And although they were able to seize power briefly, thanks to, to a military-led coup supported by the United States, that their power was never really built on any kind of foundations. So they've been waiting for the inevitable. And now that it's come, well, it's, uh, people are being quiet. I mean, I've, uh, you know, this, uh, yesterday I was walking around with a, with a mass hat, and which just a few weeks ago could have got you in, in quite a lot of trouble walking around the city centre. But now everyone sort of bows their heads. And it's a, it's a new, new atmosphere, and it's a, it's a liberating one, certainly. So this past week... Mars was re-elected, uh, not under Evo Morales, because he was in exile in Argentina, having been forced to flee in fear of his life from Bolivia. But it was re-elected, and you might be inclined to say, well, all's well that ends well in that case. You know, you have this dictatorship that is very short-lived. However, that dictatorship did immense damage. Bolivia's economy is now in the state it was in 2005, so that's almost 15 years of hard work trying to better this country undone. You, you know, um, in 2005, as Nick said, it was the poorest country in South America, and now not only has it been hit by austerity under this new government, privatization, huge corruption, but it's been hit by coronavirus and a government that was not 
inclined to protect its citizenry because it wasn't elected by them. Um, and so the only purchase of ventilators that this government made, they paid double the amount they had to pay, and then people looked into this, and it turned out they'd pocketed half the money. This was only 30 ventilators. It's not enough for a country which has had no attempts to you know, stop the spread. So really, Bolivia has been devastated in the course of a year. And in terms of where we lie the blame, I know that journalist, Oli Vargas, brought this up, and Nick also brought it up during that break. What was the involvement of America? And Nick, you were telling me a bit about it, America's involvement in South America, the US's involvement in South yeah. America. To the early 70s, and I must admit at the time, you know, I, I landed there not really knowing much about what was going on, and I landed in Santiago in Chile, and it was strange, or like there was a bit of a Che Guevara cult there, and like Che Guevara faces on mud flaps of lorries, mm. and in one sense, and this was the only left-wing country in South America, Chile under Salvador Allende, but strange things were happening on the streets, you know, the, the, suddenly the, there would be strikes of taxi drivers and this sort of thing against mm. the government. Now, I, it was only after I left a few months later that the whole place collapsed and it was brought down partly by the interference of Americans. Um, Salvador Allende was uh, killed in the presidential palace. Um, a lot of people were rounded up and put in a, a sports stadium, including one of the famous poets. A lot of people were killed. I was traveling, before this happened, I was traveling up the coast. You imagine that sort of thin strip, which is Chile, that goes up towards Bolivia. Mm. And the train was an old sort of British Victorian train, overcrowded. And I was traveling with a couple of young communists who were actually from Argentina, and that, which also had its problems. Right, yeah. But they had been very excited about what was happening in Chile, and they'd been working on a cooperative down south. Anyway, we got quite friendly, and I'd bought on a bookstore, bear in mind that Chile was quite free, this book called Les, Los Secretos Documentos to ETT. Now, the great thing about some Spanish words, they're very similar to English, so it was the secret documents of ITT, which was a, a company which was undermining what was happening in Chile. And these were the original documents and then translated into Spanish. But my um, Argentinian friends were appalled that I took this into Bolivia because they said, suddenly you're in a different place now. This is a very frightening place. You know, I was just wandering around like a tourist. But the, the truth, as you say, then was America wasn't, was all over, the USA was all over South America in a way that it's not so much today. I don't think it, partly it's because it isn't the power it was, partly because it's been distracted in other parts, parts of the world. But just by the way, culturally, mm. Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola had their own wars going on in South American countries. So, in some bars, the barman had been bribed so that if someone asked for a Pepsi, he gave them a, a Coca-Cola, <laughs> this sort of thing. And they would give the, remember yo-yos, ever seen yo-yos, Coca-Cola yeah. giving those out. So all that sort of cultural stuff was going on as well. But you know, basically, the, the fall of Allende was really bad news for South America because that was, um, as you were saying to me off air, democratically elected, and that's what the Americans really feared. Yeah, Henry... Which is really what they fear about Bolivia today. Exactly. Henry Kissinger, who was Nixon's 
Richard Nixon's uh, Secretary of State, was famously anti-communist, anti-socialist, just any even nearing left-wing country in basically the same hemisphere as the US under his policy could not be tolerated. And he said, and this was documented decades later in declassified documents, but he said, Salvador Allende is more of a threat than Fidel Castro because he's democratic, because Chile is free and socialist, and that cannot be tolerated. And you then had Nixon CIA told its operatives in Chile to undermine the Allende government by any means, quote, however bizarre, unquote, which is, um, yeah, it's, oh, bizarre. Quite, I mean, yeah, it's, it's quite chilling. Whenever you say... Uh, Cuba, and you think of all those assassination attempts on Fidel. Oh, yes. And there were, I mean, it, I think it's, it's incredible. It was something like over 40, including, you know, this sounds like some sort of Marx Brothers film, but in, including exploding cigars. <laughs> exploding <laughs> cigars. They tried to poison pearls in his favorite diving spot, I believe. He had a mistress who was recruited by the CIA to kill him, but she decided not to go through with it. It's all very James Bond. Maybe they should have tried microwaves. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So I don't know if you heard a report today, two CIA agents in Australia have oh, yeah. reckoned that Australia, some Australian has um, mm. targeted them with microwaves. So. <laughs> wow. And you look at that, Chile under Lende, and you look at Bolivia, Bolivia's government probably isn't quite as left-wing as Allende's was, but it's still that thing of a democratic, free, socialist state that in the 60s couldn't be tolerated, and that ideology never went away. The CIA is, has not changed at all. You know, there's been no attempt to change its power or its operations in those 60 years, so who's to say that, and most of what we know about their operations in the 60s is from declassified documents, which are declassified having, you know, decades having passed. We don't know what they're doing now. The other thing is, as you said, most people wouldn't have been aware of, of what's been going on in Bolivia. Exactly. And of course, it, it, it is that clown north of the border who, who tends to dominate world news, mm. and will, will again today because of the second and last presidential exactly. debate, which you know, I didn't see much of, and I, in one sense, didn't see much point of seeing much of, just because we sort of know him now, you know, enough to know mm. what's coming out of it. But it's been terrible for democracy because so much of the mainstream media concentrates on what he's doing. Exactly. All these other things happening in different parts of the world. And mm. I don't <laughs> see Trump having much of an ideological commitment to undermining socialism abroad. He's very isolationist in that sense. Yeah. It's maybe his only, I don't know what you'd call that, not bad thing. A attribute. <laughs> attribute, <laughs> yes. But at the end of the day, you know, those kind of, the, the American military, the American intelligence state kind of operate with not much direction a lot of the time. They're kind of on autopilot, so really don't know what their involvement is. What happened specifically in Bolivia is that an organization called the Organization of American States, 
which was set up in the 60s, 50s, by the US as an anti-communist alliance, that's the organization that was monitoring this election on behalf of the spirit of democracy or whatever. And so they released a report a few days after the election declaring fraud, saying that the Bolivian government had rigged the election, saying that it was invalid, and that is the opening that allowed the military to step in to say, step down or we're going to kill you, allowed right-wing mobs to riot in the streets and burn down the houses of Mars officials. And at the time, that report was taken at face value in the Western media. You know, the New York Times, the Washington Post portrayed this as a victory for democracy. This right-wing coup, a victory for democracy because this socialist government that was supposedly rigging elections had been overthrown by a quote-unquote popular movement. Those same publications, the New York Times, the Washington Post, later backtracked, later said, hey, this report is... And there is articles in those newspapers detailing why that report was just completely wrong. It was... There was no actual proof of election fraud. Well, this is Trumpian, isn't it? Because it is. Because that's exactly what he's doing now in the US elections. He's been saying for, it seems like, months now that the election's going to be rigged against him, there's going to be fraud. Exactly. And he's been saying over and over again, so it's clearly a, a strategy. So whatever the result, yes. if it goes against him, he's going to say it was fixed. And really, the kind of bar for evidence if you're going to be deposing a democratically elected government should be a bit higher than there's some anomalies. There's some, we, I, my mate knows a guy who knows a guy who saw a guy, you know, committing election fraud. It should be some beyond reasonable doubt. It's very hard to see how this was in any way justified, and it wasn't. And I think the involvement of America as this kind of, like, what is the business of the OAS, OAS in presiding over these elections anyway? Why is an organization dominated by America the arbitrator and the decider of what is democratic? And you look at America, that is not a standard for democracy.